Welcome to the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. We hope you find this episode helpful and informative. And of course, we have other episodes on our Podbean podcast page and our YouTube page for the video version. And our website has a host of other resources at multifaithmatters.org. And we encourage you to stop by there. And of course, uh, keep in mind that we are a nonprofit organization. And if you find the website and the work of Multi-Faith Matters helpful, as we try to tackle some of the most important social and cultural issues of our day as informed by religion, and as we try to uh, model respectful conversations through deep religious difference, if you find all of that helpful and would like to help support this work, uh, please consider visiting our patrons page where you can be a regular online supporter through as little as one, three, or $5 a month. Or, of course, uh, our, you can make a one-time donation through uh, our website, again, at multifaithmatters.org. Hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thank you for watching and listening. This is the Multifaith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the uh, podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and I am uh, privileged today to have Michael T. McRae on the program. And uh, Michael is the author of a fantastic book uh, titled, I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World. And uh, Michael's bio on the back, Michael's a writer, facilitator, and story practitioner. And McRae has a, a master's degree in conflict resolution and reconciliation. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, I'll put his uh, contact information, his website, and the information on this book in uh, the program notes for this podcast. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. It's really nice to be here. It's good to have you here. I appreciate uh, you making some time to come and, and talk about this book. I think it's a, a great one, one that needs to be done. Um, can you. you talk a little bit at the top about some of your background and the work that you're doing in, in conflict resolution and reconciliation? How in the world did you get to this place? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I I don't actually know. I think about this a lot because I get asked this question all the time. And it's always been hard, actually, to kind of find what's the real thread that has connected me to this work. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Appalachia. Uh, my dad was a family practice physician um, and had moved to an area to provide quality health care for uninsured and underinsured people. Um, and and at an early age, I remember dad talking a lot about the importance of, uh, of Matthew 25 uh, in, our, in my theological upbringing. So for anyone who doesn't have that passage memorized, it's essentially part of it is where Jesus is talking to the disciples and, and says, you know, on the judgment day, you're going to be divided between the left and the right, the sheep and the goats. And I'm going to ask you a series of questions, <laughs> you know, essentially, or I'm going to say a series of statements, which are basically, I was you know, hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. And they're like, when did we do that exactly? And he says, whenever you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And so my dad said uh, that this was a cheat sheet for the final exam, he called it, <laughs> that if there's a final exam, Jesus tells us what's going to be on it. And 
what was interesting was that it didn't have a lot to do, according to that story from Jesus, about what we believed or what we even espoused about who God was. It had to do with where we spent our time and who we spent our time with. Um, what kind of acts of faith did we do? Right. And so that was really central. That became very foundational for me in the way that I thought about my um my faith and, and, and work. And so it led me to, to want to sort of investigate quote unquote, the, the margins, what are the experiences of people for whom life is difficult? Cause life for me as a, as a white Christian, you know, male in the South hasn't always, hasn't been that hard. <laughs> you know, things have worked out pretty well for me. Um, but that's not true for so many people. And so I started paying attention to that and paying attention to what the stories were of people, uh, lived experiences of, of people who, um, live life from below. And that's a phrase that comes from the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was um, killed by the Nazis in World War II. Uh, and he, he wrote when he was in prison, about to be executed, that it is of incomparable value that we see the great events of world history from below, from the perspective of the suspect, the maltreated, the powerless. He says, in short, from the perspective of people who suffer, that this is of incomparable value that we see the world this way. So I, I've tried to do that. And part of, I think, what that has done is led me to be looking at violence and the experiences of people in suffering from violence and, and experiences of trauma and conflict. And, um, and, and I also, that kind of coincided with at a very, my very first international trip was when I was 10 and I went to Israel. Um, and my granddad was an archaeologist and a New Testament professor. And oh, wow. uh, so he spent much of his career traveling and doing archaeological digs in Israel. My dad spent some time in Jerusalem as a kid. And um, so I made my first trip there. And then we lived there for, a, for about a month in 2001. Um, and um, I've in the last 20 years, I've been able to travel there about 13 times or so. And, uh, and so I grew up feeling an attachment to this place that's just, you know, well known for its conflict. <laughs> and right. so I, I kind of was developing also, as I was growing into an awareness of what was happening, I was developing a, a real passion for wanting to, in some way, be part of uh, helping heal or facilitate peace building, which was very lofty and a bit kind of egotistical of me at a young age, but it led me to this to this interest in how is it that we deal with conflict? How can we transform conflict out of something that is hurting us and into something that can help us? Because I'm a true believer, like you're never going to get rid of conflict. You know, one of the things I always say is where two or more are gathered, there will be conflict. Right, <laughs> like, right. you know, it's just part of what it is to be alive. But conflict doesn't have to hurt us. It doesn't have to be destructive. Conflict can be a real opportunity uh, for finding where can, where do things need to change? Where are there opportunities for growth? And so I just began to pay attention to that and ended up moving to Ireland to study peace building, conflict resolution and reconciliation in Belfast, um, which suffered its own violence for many, many years. Um, and so now I've, I've gotten to do all kinds of work uh, in mediation and um, story exchanges to build empathy and nonviolent direct action and violence de-escalation in prison, uh, teaching conflict resolution in college. I do get to do story and kind of peace building consulting work now. So it's a, it, that's a long answer to the question, but it's, those are some of the threads I think that I, that have kind of led me to this place of, of wanting to, to spend a lot of my time thinking about how is it that we build a peaceful, like a more peaceable world where it's, e it's easier to be good people. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so that's what I'm interested in. Well, you look like a young guy, and with a great book like this, I think you got a long, uh, positive yeah. <laughs> future ahead of you. So I appreciate Thank it. You. I think one of the some of the reasons I was drawn to this is uh, 
through Multi-Faith Matters, we did a couple of grants from the Louisville Institute trying to understand the psychological dynamics uh, uh, going on with conservative Christians as to why they tend to have this negative kind of uh, affective dimension, this emotion of disgust and, and this type of thing towards people in other religious traditions. Mm. And we a part of that grant was uh, strategic storytelling. And so mm. we produced a video telling the story of a church in Sacramento that was being neighborly and hospitable towards the Muslim community. Um, this, your book is a tell stories to build empathy and, and to build mm. bridges across these divides. How did, how did this idea come about to tell these stories like that? Well, the, my fascination with storytelling is rooted in my, in my childhood, both with seeing the way that my dad talked about stories from his medical practice, but also just being in a family that told a lot of stories and, um, the, the stories of our family have become sort of like a liturgy, you know, they're like, uh, we, we all know them, we all know the cues when a good story is about to happen, and we can all tell the same stories. And uh, so I grew up with this love of stories. But I, uh, like in, in college, I studied history, and I had a professor who, um, who insisted on teaching history from the perspective of those whose stories don't usually get told. So for instance, you know, I had a class in colonial America, and uh, everything we read, all the stories of colonial America, uh, he taught from the perspective of people that were enslaved, Native Americans or, or women, um, which are not usually, the, usually it's the stories of white men of colonial America. And so he was trying to say, how do we hear this story if we look through different lenses and hear different voices? And I was just, I was so moved by that and so uh, compelled by how different the stories sound when we hear them from different voices. Um, and then there was something, there's just something about storytelling that kind of makes me feel alive. And I think that's true for a lot of people. I mean, I don't know anyone in the world who's not interested in a good story, right? It's pretty universal. And so it's, it's also then a very effective technology because it's so ingrained in people. Everyone knows how to tell a story, even though lots of people say, I'm not a storyteller. But anytime you talk about the things that have happened to you, you're telling a story. Uh, and uh, so there's this sense to which we all actually know how to do it. And we all are drawn to it. We, there's something that's, uh, that's magnetic about storytelling. Um, and so it can really, there's an old saying that the shortest distance between two people is a story. And so when you're talking about conflict and how to, um, how to bring people into some kind of hopefully um, peaceable relationship one another, with one another, storytelling is an essential tool for that um, because it's going to allow us to, um, to, to hear new things from people that we didn't expect to hear uh, as we, as we actually, but partly because what we do in, in conflict is that we begin to very quickly narrate a story about someone in our head, right? If I get into conflict with my wife, I'm going to start, I'm, I'm going to start creating in my head, this whole narrative about why she's doing this and, you know, what she's thinking and, and who she thinks I am. And you sort of create all these stories. Um, but those don't necessarily match the reality of the, whether that's the truth or even they don't match the story that that person is telling about themselves. And so, you know, storytelling is a really helpful way of hearing how is it that you would narrate the truth of this experience for yourself? And, uh, and so this particular project I got into in, I think it was 2014 when I first came up with the idea and ISIS was in the news a lot for beheadings. Um, Israel was bombing Gaza at the time. Um, the uh, uprising in Ferguson was happening. Michael Brown had just been killed. And so there was a lot of stuff in the news um, and all of it felt very violent because that is also a part of the truth of the world. The world is a violent place. Right. But I was also thinking 
there's more than one truth about the world. The world isn't only violent. <laughs> and the stories that we put in front of ourselves um, are going to directly affect kind of the breadth of our imagination. So this is like the heliotropic principle in biology, right? Plants grow toward the sun. And so when I think like people grow toward the stories that you put in front of them and that, that informs the imagination we have about the world. So if the stories that we're consuming are stories that begin and end with violence, that's the imagination we develop about the world. So I, I thought, you know, there's, I really want to be intentional about finding stories of people who have who are living in violent contexts, but are finding other ways to engage with one another. And so I decided to, to try to travel to um, areas of the world that everyone know that everyone when they hear them think violence, Nor you know, Northern Ireland uh, for certain generations think that Israel and Palestine, South Africa, um, Rwanda. Um, I didn't end up making it to Rwanda on the this particular trip, but I've since been. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to then hear from people who were born and bred in these contexts to say, how is it that you're finding a way to try to live well with the people, uh, uh, that are around you? Uh, and so I spent several months in 2015 traveling through all these countries, uh, talking to people who had lost loved ones, whose children had been killed, um, whose parents had been killed, who were former combatants themselves, um, and, and this book then narrates those conversations and narrates the, the, the time that I spent with these uh, individuals. I ended up having about 70 conversations. There's only 10 chapters in the book, but, um, uh, but kind of narrates these, uh, these interactions to say, you know, here, here are their particular experiences and their, their reflections now about what has made this transition possible from how is it that Joe Barry, for instance, in one of the chapters, can lose her father to a bomber, an IRA bomber in, in England, uh, and then end up befriending the man that killed her father. Like, how does that happen? <laughs> you know, and that's right. where that's where a story comes in, right? There's there's no there's no philosophy that you're just gonna be able to preach about that that's divorced from a story. A story is what makes it real, right? A story is what makes it accessible. Um, that there is then sort of theory within those about this is what I think it takes to to befriend someone that killed your your father. Um, but that would just be theory, right? The, the, the story itself is says, this is how it's embodied. This is how it worked for me. And that's something that we can get our heads around. Um, so I've just found stories to be engaging and effective for communicating these complicated truths about how it is that we're going to live together. Well, uh, we'll come back to stories to unpack that a little bit further, but I, I want to get some thoughts from you. You know, your book is titled, I am not your enemy. And I think that that's just a huge topic, enemy identification, enemy creation. Um, I, I shared with you before we started the podcast that uh, uh, a few weeks ago, I was doing a, an online uh, seminar for a friend who asked me to, to unpack my approach to multi-faith interaction. And uh, during Q&A, uh, one of the, the people said, well, you know, God has enemies and uh, how should we relate to God's enemies? And that whole concept of, of Christians identifying others as enemies to me was um, intriguing and troubling at the same time. Um, it, it just seems to me that particularly conservative Christians, particularly American evangelicals, we focus a lot on enemies, uh, political enemies, religious enemies, and this kind of thing. Do you share some thoughts with me on how we might rethink that, that whole idea and why it's problematic? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's there's a degree to which it's somewhat simple. I think Jesus was pretty clear about it. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's, so there's, there's a, there's a place in, uh, in the gospels where Jesus says, you know, look, you've heard it said, you know, an eye for an eye, 
but I'm, I'm telling you to love your enemies. And um, I mean, it's hard, it's, it's hard to get much clearer than that. Yeah. You know, I mean, cause one of the things that I take from that is that Jesus was assuming that enemies were real for the people he's talking to. Right. I mean, that they, and they probably were all thinking of the same people, whether that was the Romans that were occupying their country um, or the Samaritans that they had othered and, and dehumanized or whoever it might be, but the, the, his audience assumed that they had enemies because uh, he doesn't explain who they are. Right. He just, he says, love your enemies. Um, and so not only, so what was important for me there is to be like, yeah, the con the, the experience of having enemies is real for a lot of people, you know, that there are people who harm us. There are people that we're afraid of that, that, um, that call for the destruction or, or annihilation of some people. We saw that in Nazi Germany, like the, the Nazis were real enemies to the Jewish people. <laughs> like that was real. Um, and, uh, and so there is this sense to which that's a reality. And then Jesus is also saying in the midst of that reality, the call is not to kill them. <laughs> the call is not to hate them or to even continue to see them as enemies. You're supposed to love them. Um, I, I personally don't have anyone that I love that I think of as an enemy. So there's something there that Jesus is putting these contradictions together. It would, it would seem to me. And so, so that, and I, I I, that's just for me, the way I try to read most of the scriptures is to have a kind of a Christocentric lens is to say, how do I make sense of the Bible through the context of Jesus? Uh, in the Because if I'm, if I'm going to say that Jesus is the clearest manifestation of what it is for God to live on earth, whether that's that you believe in a literal incarnation, which of course many do, or some might just say that Jesus isn't the actual incarnation of God, but is a manifestation, it's a clear image, however you want to frame it, the point is the same. You look at Jesus, you're supposed to have a sense of what, it, of how God would live on the earth, right? So if that's true, then, um, then I want to take I want to say, okay, so if that's, if that's the clearest image, then I want to make sense of the rest of the, of the story in the context of, of this made clear for us. Um, and so here I hear Jesus saying, yeah, look, you've had other ways of thinking about violence, about ways to engage with people, even about the idea of enemies. But this is the fulfillment of this. It's not, it's not, an, it's not a, a doing away with that. It's saying this is where this idea was going the whole time. <laughs> you know, that there used to be this sense of just get even and not even get even, get more. If someone takes a sheep, go get four or five of their other sheep. And then there was this setting of the idea of an eye for an eye. <laughs> Don't go and retaliate beyond what was taken from you. If someone takes a sheep, you get a sheep back. Someone takes your eye, you take their eye. It's, it was the idea of like evening things out. But then Jesus comes and says, but that wasn't supposed to be the end, right? The end of this was loving your enemies. That's where it's supposed to go. And I think a lot of Christians get stuck back on the idea of the eye for an eye is justice. And I'm like, yeah, but Jesus specifically told us that wasn't supposed to be where we, where we remain. We don't get stuck there. We're supposed to be going somewhere else. Um, so I think for, for Christians specifically, you got to reckon with that. You got to reckon with what does it mean to love your, your enemies? And that can mean a lot of different things, but I, I'm unaware of any context where I feel like I'm, I'm willing to kill someone that I love <laughs> or I'm willing to, to, to commit harm on someone that I love. So I feel like at the very least, it's got to mean something like that. It's got to mean that I have to be curious about who this person is. I try to be curious about people that I love. <laughs> I try to get to know them. I try to give them the benefit of the doubt. I try to keep them safe. You know, like, so what is all that? that mean when we love our enemies and and i think enemies the language and the logic of enemies are very convenient for us you know it's it's it fits our wiring because you know 
for as long as we've humans have existed, you know, you think back even like in the saber tooth tiger days, like we, our minds have been formed to search the landscape for threats. That's how you survive. <laughs> you know, is this thing that's approaching going to be a friend or a foe? And I need to decide quickly, otherwise it could pounce and kill me. And so it has as we have developed as a as a as humanity that wiring is still pretty firm in us and so we are we instinctively when we meet people or or hear stories or we're, we're instinctively evaluating is this friend or foe um, and so there is a sense to which the language of enemies fits this wiring and i also think it fits this dichotomous uh, theology of heaven and hell right there are some good people in the world and there are bad people in the world and that's a really easy way to see the world we won't get into heaven and hell theology now i, I have complicated feelings about all that um but it, there's a sense to which like this this idea of enemies is comfortable because it fits some of the wiring of our of our brain and that's what makes jesus Jesus is um, teaching their challenging and why I think a lot of us pretty much would rather ignore it <laughs> because it feels very, not just countercultural, but like counter biology almost. You know, like it is, it's a really hard concept, but I think it's something we have to take seriously. And so that's where I started thinking about, okay, so how is it that we dismantled this notion of enemy? Not that we're ever going to be able to entirely get rid of it, but when it, when it happens for us, like, what do we, what do we do with it? And so I've often talked about the kind of three core steps for me and trying to dismantle the concept of, of enemies. The first is the idea of proximity, that um, it is much easier to have an enemy that you don't know, right? That's, that's at a distance. We can assume things about people in the Middle East or, you know, um, Muslims who we don't understand because we've never actually met one <laughs> or had a conversation with one. And so when you actually shorten the distance and get closer, um, it is true that it is it is harder to fear and hate people up close <laughs> like that is true. It's also not sufficient because for most of human history, proximity was necessary in order to kill people. <laughs> right. You had to you had to get within stabbing distance. We didn't have guns or, or nukes or drones. And so proximity in and of itself doesn't mean that you're going to get along. You can look at that in prison. Right. Prison guards and prisoners are in close proximity, but they don't have like beloved community. Um, and so you need proximity, first of all but you need more than that. And I think a second thing you need is humility. And this is the thing that I think gets really difficult for many Christians. Uh, I think about humility in terms of what we call Snoopy theology. So there was a Snoopy comic book or comic strip where there were four squares and the first square, Charlie Brown approaches Snoopy who's sitting on his doghouse writing. Charlie Brown says, I hear you're writing a book of theology. And then in the second square, he says, I hope you have a good title. In the third square, Snoopy says, I have the best title. And the fourth square has the title listed, which is, has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? Uh, which was, Snoopy says, is the best title for a book of theology. And so I think when you're talking about how do we dismantle enemies, that notion has to be there. Has it ever occurred to us that we might be wrong? Um, and so once we have that, hum that humility to ask that question, the third piece then is curiosity. From that humility, we have to actually then cultivate a wondering about the other person. What is it that I might not know about them that would be really important for me to know? What is it about their story that might challenge me, that might, um, that might call upon my humanity, that might evoke empathy? And so cultivating that curiosity uh, is important. It doesn't mean that after we get close, we wonder if we've been wrong and we get curious that suddenly we're going to love everybody, <laughs> but it, it might be, but those things 
I'm not aware of a time when I have ever moved from fearing or even hating something or someone into a more uh, um, a relationship of, of more trust or affection without those three things. Like I had, I had to be challenged and wonder, I think I may have assumed some things that, may, that weren't true, or maybe the things I assumed were right, but I just didn't know the whole story. And that's one of the things we do with enemies is we create what are called single stories, right? This Chimamanda Adichie, the Nigerian novelist, has a beautiful TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story. And she says that single stories are stories that depict only one side to a person or an event where we just say, you know, these people are this or, um, you know, the like a lot of times, especially after 9-11, Arabs are terrorists, right? That's a single story. It's, there's no nuance to it. It's universal. Um, and Chimamanda Adichie says the problem with single stories aren't that they're necessarily untrue. There's almost always truth to stereotypes or single stories. The real problem is that they're incomplete, like they're unfinished. And so the task then, I think, in challenging single stories and challenging the notion of enemies is how is it that we add on more stories? How do we live in pluralities? And uh, I grew up in conservative Christianity and a lot of conservative Christians and Christians in general do not like pluralities. We like things to be very singular, just be like simplicity helps us, but the world is complex. It's not, it's not simple. Right. And the more that we can work in plurality is to say there isn't ever only one story to anyone. You know this about yourself. You know this about your partners. You know this about your friends. People are complicated. And when we make them uncomplicated, whether that's to, to call somebody an angel or a saint <laughs> or to call them a demon, that's dehumanizing because humans by definition are complex. So we can dehumanize people in exalting ways and in kind of egregious ways. And I think that the, the task of dealing with enemies is how do we cloak them in the complexity that they deserve and to try to get close enough and humble enough and curious enough um, that we can see a side of them that we might not have expected to see. I resonate with uh, all of what you just said there. I mean, my, uh, my research in social psychology and social neuroscience and application to conservative evangelicals and other religions, we are very tribal, us versus them. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of conservative white evangelicals, uh, uh, we, we specialize in, in identifying others as enemies. And, and I, I think what you've identified there is very helpful. And, and Jesus didn't call us to an easy way of doing things. I think it, it's the difficult way, you know. Uh, so I appreciate that. Let's yeah. unpack um, uh, the importance of stories a little bit more. Conservative evangelicals, which is a big part of the audience for this podcast, we like doctrine. We like abstract <laughs> ideas. You know, and I've run into this quite a bit. What's, what's your theology for what you're talking about? And uh, what is the importance of, uh, why, do, why are stories so effective in cutting to the heart of mm -hmm. people who perceive each other as enemies and in conflict? How can that be a helpful tool for us to add to the toolbox? Yeah, that's a great question. My, my granddad was a Church of Christ um, pastor and a, and a, the, a professor, and um, one of the when he would speak to, to, and he'd preach in the church of Christ, he would say, uh, he'd quote first Corinthians 13, um, you know, the passage on love. And at the end it says, now these three remain faith, hope, and love. Uh, and so my granddad would, would misquote it intentionally. So he would say, and these three remain faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is doctrine. And then <laughs> people would be like, what? That's not what it says. And he's like, exactly. It's not what it says. <laughs> right. uh, doctrine didn't even make a, the, the list of three, and it certainly wasn't the top one. Um, so what was there were these values and these practices, faith, hope, and love. And 
And that's what I think stories do so well, better than most any other form of communication, is that stories are the best vehicles for communicating emotion and values. Uh, and I think that that's, those are the primary motivators uh, for action. Most people make decisions based on what they feel and what they think is right, right? Emotion and value. Um, and so stories have those embedded in them all the time if you're telling a story well, um, because they're, you know, when we're telling stories about ourselves, we are people with feelings and we're, we're driven by the things that we value. Um, and so I think that they, they allow us to connect to one another and to, and, and they cut, co they cover so much ground as well, right? In a two minute story, um, you can, you can communicate so much about who you are or who somewhere else, is, someone else is and the things that they hold dear without ever having to just like generate a list. You know, I believe this, 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 and this, I can tell you a two minute story. That's going to hold all those things in there. So they're also really efficient in that way. Um, but as we've learned about the neuroscience of stories, even, you know, there's a, I, I kind of geek out about all the neuroscience stuff, yeah, me but, too. <laughs> but the, <clears throat> there've been amazing brain scans that have been done. Let me back up. There's what we've always known is that stories feel connecting, you know, that there's, um, it, there's this kind of graphic that I've been seeing going around the internet right now that shows kind of two circles, you know, apart on the screen. And it says, you know, your, your perception of the other before telling a story. And then the second part is your, your, your perception of the other after hearing their story. And it now looks like a Venn diagram, right? So it's the idea of like, when we tell stories, we're shrinking the distance between us. So we've known that experientially, but now we know why it's true scientifically. And it's because we, like there was a study several years ago of a person who was hooked up to a brain scanner. And then there were 11 people also hooked up to brain scanners at the same time. The person, the first person's job was to tell a story to to the 11 people who were listening. And so then they, they snapped pictures of the kind of brain lit up in, in all of those folks. And what was amazing is that when the storyteller was telling the story, you know, there'd be certain parts of the brain lit up, but when they snapped pictures of the listeners at the same time, the exact same parts of the brain were lit up. And so it's this phenomenon called mirror neurons or neural coupling, which is the idea that essentially your brains become like, they're like Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, like they sync up in a way that it doesn't for other kinds of information. Storytelling is one of the unique ways that the brain essentially syncs up, which is, it's why like when you're watching a, like a scary movie that you know is a movie, but something scary happens and you jump, right? Like it scares you, even though it's on a television, but it's because your brain doesn't know to interpret that you're not actually a part of the story, <laughs> that it's, it's a story on a screen. Your brain interprets it as if you are in that story. And so it scares you. And so that's what is so, um, why the stories can be so effective and sort of breaking down a lot of the walls that we build around ourselves, because it is creating this very unique connection in our brains um, and flooding us with, with uh, chemicals in our brains, dopamine that makes you, it's the pleasure chemical that makes you feel good. Oxytocin, which is the chemical that you feel when you give someone a hug or tell someone that you love them, that, that, that feeling you get of, oh my goodness, I feel so connected. You know, I've got an 11 month old baby and whenever he kind of waddles toward me, you know, it falls into my arms. The, that rush that I feel is, that's called oxytocin. That's the name of the chemical. And storytelling produces that chemical in people's brains. It's why we we can we tend to feel trusting of people who tell us good stories. Or when we're laughing, laughter produces oxytocin as well. So it's it's just to say, like there is actual neuroscience about the ways that stories make us feel connected because of the chemicals that it produces in the brain. So there's that piece about why I think story does a lot for us. Um, 
but you can look Jesus told stories constantly, (laughs) right? You know, there was, um, you know, there were a lot of kind of teachings, of course, that, that Jesus did that weren't stories, but so many of the, the important things that Jesus wanted to communicate, he put in the form of a story with characters, things that happened to, to people. Um, and because it, the stories can, can hold those lessons for us, but they also, uh, they, stories have a way of lo- kind of lodging themselves in our brains in a way that, um, that kind of facts and doctrine or theology doesn't. So like, for instance, when your brain is processing facts, only two parts of your brain are used for that. So it's very limited parts of your brain that you, that are process facts. But when you listen to a story, there's usually about seven to nine pieces of your brain that light up for that. So the, the story is able to kind of land and take root and soak into your brain in a way that processing facts doesn't. Um, and so I think Jesus was, was onto something there. <laughs> Surprise, uh, that Jesus knew, like, if I want this to stick, I need to put this into a story. Um, because that's, that's gonna, stories can hold complexity, but they also can, can, um, stay with people for a lot longer because they, they kind of seep into more parts of our brain. Um, who knows if Jesus had seen brain scans by that point, I'll let you all decide <laughs> your theology on that. But he, he knew something about that technology of communication that I think it's worth, uh, worth us thinking about. Yeah. Well, we've talked about stories. Let, let's hear a few stories. Can you share a story or two and how they have this tremendous power of transformation yeah. for people? Yeah. Um, one that's in the book I, I referenced earlier. There's so many. There's so many really powerful ones in the book. One is um, the story of of Joe Barry and Pat McGee. Um, so Joe Barry is an English woman who, in I think it was 1984, uh, her father, who was a member of the British Parliament, was killed in a bombing in England. Um, by a member of the IRA. So the IRA is the Irish Republican Army. Um, We won't get into the whole history of the Northern Irish Troubles, but essentially the Irish Republican Army was a paramilitary group that rose up to try to um, push the British uh, presence out of Ireland. Uh, In the northern part of Ireland, it's still technically part of the United Kingdom, part of Britain, and the Irish Republican Army didn't want that anymore. They wanted all of Ireland to be united. And so they were fighting the British Army. Um, and so Joe's father was a member of the parliament, member of the British government. And so he was targeted by an IRA bomber named Patrick McGee, who then went to prison. Um, and Joe was, of course, devastated, as anyone would be if their father was killed in a bomb. And for 16 years, she worked through that stuff, trying, going to retreats, going to different processes to try to come to terms with her own trauma, with her own uh, anger um, and, and figure out her own path forward. And then in 1998, there was something called the Good Friday Accords, uh, which was the peace agreement essentially signed to end this conflict. And as is true with a lot of peace accords in the context of a protracted conflict, uh, political prisoners get released. It's, it's a pretty normal thing. So Patrick McGee was set free as part of the, the accord. And Joe ended up getting word uh, from a friend that Patrick wanted to meet her. And she was like, well, okay. Um, and so she, she traveled to Ireland from England and uh, they were meeting at a friend's house. And so she got there first and of course was just so nervous and Patrick showed up. And when she, when he showed up, she walked up and stuck out her hand and said, thank you for coming, which I always, I always just was struck by that the first words out of her mouth to the man that killed her father were thanks. You know, it's, wow. it's something as simple as thanking him for coming, which is a normal thing to say, but 
she could have just unloaded profanity on him or anything, anything else slapped him in the face, but she shakes his hand and says, thanks for coming. And they ended up spending a couple of hours talking. And Joe said that those early, that, that early time together was a lot of political justification, right? A lot of Patrick trying to say, here's why I did this. This is what your father represented. You know, we had to do this. And it was, it was just a lot of justifying and, and Joe, understandably, was just like, I'm not interested in this anymore. I, like, I don't really want to hear all the justification for killing my father. So she decided to start wrapping up the conversation. But right when she made that decision, Patrick's tone and energy changed. And he said, honestly, I don't know what to think anymore. <laughs> I don't know what to say anymore. But I want to hear your rage. Can you, can you tell me how you're feeling? And that, that invitation, that desire from him to have empathy, um, changed the whole dynamic. And she said that, that she really felt that, that uh, Patrick was, um, was uh, kind of undone by her empathy, that he didn't expect her to be compassionate or to care about him at all. But the way that she listened threw him off, you know, it, it, it kind of um, disrupted the narrative he had played out in his imagination about what was gonna happen. And so when that changed, they began to have a different level of conversation. And this is, in, this is a side note, but in conflict resolution theory, there's, a, there's something called the pin diagram, which is essentially a pyramid. You can just imagine a triangle or a pyramid. The top level, the smallest level then are um, positions. The middle level, which is a little bit larger, are interest. And the bottom level, which is the longest piece, are needs. And the idea is that most of the time in conflict, we get into debate about the positions. Mm -hmm. It happens in theology all the time, right? What's right. your position on the Nicene Creed? Or what's your position on the incarnation of Jesus? So you get into all these positional arguments and nobody almost hardly anyone ever changes their mind based on being argued out of it <laughs> just doesn't usually happen. Um, but the idea in conflict resolution is that if you can get down to the level of needs, you're going to have a very different conversation. Um, and that's also where story has a lot of, uh, a lot to say because stories can hold those values and needs for us. Um, and so that's where Joe and, and Pat got was down to the level of needs. And they ended up developing, they ended up continuing their conversation. And this has now been 20 years. And they've spoken together, I think, 200 times around the world about their, their relationship and their journey of forgiveness um, or uh, end of reconciliation. And, and Joe told me, she said, I would consider Patrick a friend, uh, which was just remarkable to say, right? Not a colleague, not just a co-speaker, but a friend. She said, you know, on, on our airplanes, um, uh, sometimes we, we do crossword puzzles together and just like the simplicity of that, right. The humanity of that, that here she is sitting on a plane next to the man who put a bomb in a hotel that blew up her father and they're doing crossword puzzles together. Um, so there's those kinds of stories that are quite amazing. Um, and there was, you know, another one that I was thinking of that plays into this idea of the, of the pyramid, the pen diagram, position, interest, and needs. That's where the pen comes from, P-I-N. Um, and this was with an organization I've done a lot of work with called Narrative 4, um, which uh, uses a methodology called a story exchange to build empathy. So the story exchange is pretty simple. You get a group of people together. Let's just say there's 10 people. You pair them up one and one and give them a little bit of time to tell one another a true story from their life based on a prompt or a theme. They listen really carefully to the other's story. And then they come back and sit in a circle with the other 10 people. And each person has to retell their partner's story in first person pronouns as if their partner's story happened to them. So John, if you and I had traded stories in the circle, I would actually say, hi, my name is John. And, you know, I run a podcast and I would do everything in first person language mm -hmm. as this practice of cultivating empathy. So narrative four, a few years ago, did a story exchange on gun violence where they brought together people on opposite sides of the gun debate. 
Uh, and so one of the one of those people was a guy named Todd who owns 250 guns and doesn't go anywhere without a gun um, and even orchestrated the sale of George Zimmerman's gun that killed Trayvon Martin. And then another woman named Caroline who held her daughter in her arms when they were both shot in a mall shooting. I think it was in Utah. Um, and so Todd <laughs> doesn't want to see any restrictions, at least at the time, to gun control or, or gun access. And Caroline, you know, marches in Washington to try to um, have gun reform and have more restrictions. So in terms of their positions, totally opposite, right? But they had to listen to one another and retell each other's stories in the first person. And one of the things that they realized as they started telling these stories was that Todd has 250 guns because when he was a kid, he was severely abused by his father. And when he grabbed a gun finally and pointed it at his father, the abuse stopped. <laughs> and so Todd learned guns keep me safe. Caroline held her daughter in her arms as she died from being shot. And so for her, she wants less guns because that will keep her safe. So even though they have opposite positions, the needs are actually the same, <laughs> a need for security and safety and protection of people that you love. And so they were able to then have a different conversation together because of this realization that their needs were actually the same, even though they were manifesting in very different positions. And so I think, again, that that's the work that story does for us, um, that when we tell those stories and hear those stories, we are able to kind of shift out of this debate around, well, what do you believe about this and what do you believe about this? And to cloak one another in the humanity that we deserve to see, yeah, there's more to this person than I would have realized. And and maybe even to get so far as to say, if I had, if I had experienced the same things you did, I would probably think the same way. Um, one of my friends, Padre Gotuma, a guy in Ireland, says that most people do what seems reasonable to them at the time, most of the time, which is a phrase I found really helpful. Most people do what seems reasonable to them at the time, most of the time. And so usually when I see acts or, or people saying things that I'm like, that seems really unreasonable. <laughs> Why would you do that? I try to remind myself, like, this probably seems reasonable to them. So what kind of mindset, what kind of experiences, what kind of story would I need to have for this to seem reasonable? And that takes you into a project of empathy um, that doesn't necessarily solve every problem. It doesn't, it doesn't solve every problem. Um, but I have seen very few problems of conflict solved without empathy, that it is a pretty central piece of dealing with this idea of, of enemies. And I think stories cultivate empathy in a way that nothing else does. Mm. Uh, as we draw our conversation to a close, uh, I'm reminded of the context in which you and I are having this conversation. We're living in post-Trump America. Um, evangelicalism has lost great credibility in, in America. Yeah. Um, we've got a time of great division and polarization. Uh, I think stories hold great potential to transform. What, would, uh, what, what final things would you say to conservative Christians about why they ought to be willing to listen to stories and share their stories and the, the power of these stories to transform their hearts and to have others to have theirs transformed. Yeah. Well, I think I'd say, remember Snoopy's theology. <laughs> Has it ever occurred to us that we might be wrong? Um, and I think that's a really important question that we hold in our minds. And, and to remember, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, that it is of incomparable value that we see the events of the world from below. Um, and to ask yourself, like, what are the what are the stories that you're not hearing? Like, who whose voice is not um, uh, in your news feed? It's not being shown in, uh, on the news that you watch. Uh, whose stories are you missing? 
Um, because I always find the world is more complicated than I'd like to imagine it. And that the more that I've learned of the stories, um, uh, of stories that I've assumed to be true, whether that's in Israel, Palestine, or, or anywhere else, that my thoughts on, on those issues have gotten more complicated. These stories matter. And so um, I just, I guess I, to encourage people to just live in the tension of knowing that you, you, we don't actually have all the answers um, that we need one another. <laughs> the, there's never going to be a time when the world is only populated by evangelical Christians. Like it's just not going to happen. <laughs> and so no matter how much you may think that you can evangelize the world, it's not going to happen that you're just going to have everyone in the world be, think just like you. So we have to figure out how do we live with people who don't think like we do? Like that is, that is an essential practice of being alive. Um, you know, after Donald Trump won, Hillary Clinton supporters didn't flee to Canada and Trump supporters aren't leaving now that Biden won, you know, like we are here together <laughs> um, and we are going to have to figure out how to live well together. And I think that's the work of, of reconciliation. How is it that we can learn to live together well, uh, even when we find it difficult to live well with each other? Like that's that's the work that we have to do. And I think that in the same way, you know, Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, if you want people to care about your story and to under, to care about your particularities, to not see you as a single story, to not do, assume that because you're an evangelical, you therefore think in certain ways. Um, maybe you voted for Trump, maybe you didn't. Most people in the country now assume if you're an evangelical, you did vote for Trump, right? So if you don't want people to assume that about you, like be cautious about how much you're assuming about others as well and give them the same curiosity for their stories that you hope that they give to you. Right. So we can go back again to the, to the call of Jesus in that way, which is a call I think for, for empathy and compassion. Um, so, and yeah, just to continue to look for the stories that can challenge our, our way of thinking um, and that can see people as uh, the Imago Dei, the image of God that, that um, we hopefully believe that we are. Great stuff. I appreciate uh, you carving out the time. My guest. Thanks, is John. <laughs> yeah, Michael T. McRae. His book is I Am Not Your Enemy, Stories to Transform a Divided World. I can't recommend it uh, more highly. You can find a link to his book and uh, to his work in the podcast notes. And uh, this book is included in the Multi-Faith Matters uh, recommended resources on our books page. And I encourage you to seek it out and Listen to other stories, and uh, then you'll have the opportunity to share your story as well. Michael, again, thank you so much for being on the podcast.